Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. If you've spent any time in Paul's letter to the Romans, and particularly chapter 8, then I'm sure you can agree with me that it is a life-giving, glorious, and triumphant letter. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. We walk in the Spirit. We mind the things of the Spirit. We will be raised with Christ in resurrection. We have become the sons and daughters of God. He's our Abba. He's our Father. We will be heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Truly, an outstanding most beautiful, perhaps the most glorious chapter in all of the writings of Paul, if perhaps not in the entire Bible. But then Paul ruins it. Yep. He puts such a damper on the tone of victory when he introduces in verse 17 Christian suffering. He says that if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified together with him. And that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. What a bummer. What a change in the tone and dynamic of the spiritual life. Seriously, Paul, don't you know that the Christian life is a bubble? Don't you know that because of Christ and all that he did for us, it exempts me, the Christian, from suffering? Don't you know that the Christian life is a red carpet where nothing ever goes wrong? I'm never misunderstood. There's no difficulty. Paul, can't you understand that the Christian life is idyllic and utopic and it's just glory to glory? That's what you wrote, after all. Paul was a realist, and he suffered because of his association with Christ. Now, Jesus Christ also suffered because of his association with the Father. Paul, in a way, is saying to the Roman Christians, if you've got two feet on this earth, you are going to suffer. And even as a Christian, a righteous man and woman of God, a justified believer, you are not excluded and exempted from suffering in this world. He introduces this in verse 17, but that theme of suffering carries now throughout the remainder of chapter 8. And just about everything that will be spoken of is in reference to suffering. Paul talks about how creation is suffering. Paul speaks about how the Spirit will pray in us when we are weak and without words. 
That is, we're struggling. We're suffering. Paul talks about how all things will work together for the good. See, in our suffering, we are in confusion and disillusionment. And Paul is basically saying, stay the course. Things are going to work together. Stay in the love of God. Paul says that we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's because in the suffering, God is working something of Christ into us. In verse 31, Paul says that God is for us. Who can be against us? Who can bring an accusation against God's people or a charge and a condemning word? We know that that happened to the early Christians. They were condemned and accused to the uttermost. And Paul is basically saying, in the context of suffering and difficulty, stay the course. God is with you. Paul says that there will be tribulation. There will be anxiety. There will be persecution and famine, and nakedness, and danger, and a sword to our neck. We might even be led like a lamb to the slaughter and be put to death. But then Paul says, in all of these things you will triumph. You'll be more than a conqueror. That statement is on the foundation of suffering. Even if you were to die, you are going to conquer in Christ Jesus. Paul concludes Romans 8 by saying that death or life or angels or powers or principalities or things present or things to come or height or depth or any creature on earth, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. All that is in context pertaining to suffering. It seems very negative. After all, Paul introduced us to so many positive things. But if you read carefully, Paul does not put a damper on the Christian life. As long as we have two feet on this earth, at times things will be difficult for us. But Paul introduces us to hope that for the Christian, God is doing something eschatological. And in this world, we will have tribulation. Don't let it get to you. God is at work for some eschatological purpose. So let's look into this eschatology so that with the Roman believers in the first century, we here in the 21st century can stay the course in hope. It is the first century, and the Apostle Paul is in the port city of St. Crea, just next to Corinth. And there he has a scribe known as an amanuensis by the name of Tertius. And that scribe would now write down what Paul dictates to him. Some scholars say it's the year 57, maybe the year 58, or even 59. Some historians would say it's the year 60. Nevertheless, Paul would dictate to Tertius in a letter his understanding 
of the gospel of God. That letter would be given to Phoebe. She would travel to Rome and she would deliver it to the Christians in Rome. Perhaps they would gather in a house or two or three houses and this letter would be read then to the Christians gathering in a house or numerous houses and it would be a letter that would be handed down from one reader to another reader. And as the believers would gather in that house, you can maybe imagine it's nighttime, there's a couple of candles lit, um, there's some food that they all share in common, and they're squeezing into a house, maybe sitting, maybe reclining, some may be standing, even some on the outside courtyards, uh, leaning in through the windows, and they're listening to this reader that out loud would declare Paul's understanding of the gospel. And what a marvelous letter, what a marvelous book this is, the letter to the Romans, where it systematically takes us through the, the way of God, the process of God, redeeming sinners and changing them into the sons and daughters of God. And I can just imagine as the believers were gathering in those houses how shocked they must have been at the goodness of God that led them to repentance. How amazed at times they must have been. How ecstatic and jubilant they must have been to perhaps even in the gatherings just shout out glory to God or praise to you God or thank you God. And I can imagine as the reader would um, get to chapter 8 of Romans and just the marvelous statements in Romans 8. I can imagine the people would go crazy. Hallelujah, glory to God. There's no condemnation in Christ. And I can, in my imagination, just see the people absolutely be celebratory and jubilant over the goodness of God, particularly regarding the statements in Romans chapter 8. The reader would get to verse 14 and speak how by the Spirit of God we can be led as the sons and daughters of God. In Romans 8 verse 15, he would say that we are no longer these slave and orphan people, but we have been adopted by the Spirit of God. And we can now cry out that God is our Father. I can imagine at that sentence there, the hearing of that marvelous truth the people just crying out, praise you, God, praise you, Father, praise you, Lord. And perhaps mayhem would break out in that meeting. It's so good. The gospel, the adoption, becoming a son and daughter, it's just so good. In verse 16 of Romans 8, Paul would say that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And I can imagine, again, just shouts and praises going forth. Then comes verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. On the one hand, we are heirs of God. And on the other hand, we are joint heirs with Christ. That is just a mind-bending statement that these sinners, these wayward people, all of us who have fallen from the very glory of God, we are no longer 
just these sinners. We, we are now the sons, but even more than that, we are so united to God. We are so identified with God. We are so adopted and brought into the household that we now actually inherit from God. He bestows something upon us. And then even more, with Christ we inherit. I can imagine being in that house church, hearing these sentences, these truths, and I can imagine people fainting. What? What? I'm going to inherit from God? And again, mayhem would break out. Hands would be raised. People's legs would get so weak they would just crumble down on their face and say, Worship you, God. Praise you, God. Wow. Not only am I brought into the house being a wayward prodigal and restored to a son, but I'm actually allowed to inherit from God and receive everything that's in the house. Can you imagine the mood, the tone, the atmosphere in those home churches as these sentences were read? After a while, the reader would quiet down the people and he would say, hey, beloved, there's more to the sentence. There's more. And I can imagine people just leaning forward in their seat, just sitting up a little bit, just tilting their head to incline their ear. Okay, what else? Tell me more goodies. Tell me some more substance regarding the gospel. And here it comes in the latter part of verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. I can just imagine the shock in hearing this sentence. This letter is so vibrant, it's so dynamic, it's so redemptive and restorative. It has such hope, such beauty in it, especially these verses where I inherit from God. I can inherit from Christ. And then all of a sudden, what a bummer, what a letdown. There will be suffering, and even as Christ suffered, I will suffer with him? Perhaps this was a shock to many Christians there in the first century. I doubt that it was, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But perhaps it was a shock, even as it is a shock to many of us. See, God is good. The gospel is good. Redemption is good. And you might even get the romanticized idea of the Christian life as you read through the letter to the Romans, and particularly chapter 8. It's just so good. And then what a damper Paul puts on the tone when he says, we will now suffer with Christ. And verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed upon us. 
at the hearing of the word glory and inheritance, I can imagine our heart just leaps and our mind just, just going wild. What could that be like to be glorified and to inherit? But Paul says a part of the package is also to suffer. And he says in this age and in this present time, you will suffer even as Christ suffered. This is not the first time the Apostle Paul would mention suffering in conjunction with the Christian life. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he speaks to the Philippian believers and he says that they've been called and chosen to suffer on behalf of Christ. In Philippians 3.10, Paul would say he would like to fellowship with Christ in his suffering. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he would say in chapter 4, verse 17, that our momentary light affliction works for us an exceedingly great weight, an eternal weight of glory. For the Apostle Paul, the Christian life, even as redemptive and as freeing and as empowering as the Christian life was, he did not have a false, romanticized view of it. Suffering is a part of life. It's not exclusively a part of the Christian life. Beloved, everybody in every sphere, in every society, in every um, dimension of human living, people suffer. There's, there's none of us that escape the difficulties of this life. I do not believe Paul is saying we have to suffer in order to be glorified. So God's got to punish me. God's got to teach me a kind of a lesson. God's got to sort of turn up the heat on my life. Otherwise, I cannot be glorified. My suffering is not the issue of glorification. My faith in Christ and grace is the issue of my glorification. Suffering is not a, a pathway to glorification. Grace is the pathway. A lot of Christians in the past 2,000 years have taught that you, I have to afflict myself. I, I have to live this masochistic, ascetic, suffering uh, life. Otherwise, I cannot be glorified. Uh, otherwise, I have to go to purgatory and be purged some more. I have to suffer some more to be worthy of glorification. Beloved, that is not what the Apostle Paul is teaching. We are saved by grace through faith, and we will be glorified through faith and in the grace of God. So what do we make then of suffering? Suffering is just a part of life. It's a part of this futile creation. And as Christians, we should not have the notion that to be redeemed means we are immediately raptured from all the troubles of this world. You know that Christ himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will be worried about what to eat and what to drink and what to wear and where to go. But then the Lord teaches us, as you're in this world with all of the cares of this world, don't let it choke you. It's going to come against you. 
There will be false accusation. There will be persecution. There will be misrepresentation. It's just a part of the human life. Don't think because you're a Christian and you're under the great, marvelous, beautiful, glorious gospel of God that somehow you're immune or exempt. No, suffering is not a path to glorification. Grace is the path. And neither is the Christians suffering some kind of a payment and punishment, some kind of a penalty for sin. Christ took care of that completely. In Christ's death, he took care of sin. See, the wages of sin is death. And Christ died to take care of that punishment, that penalty, that wage. In Isaiah 53, the prophet declares that the chastisement that is to bring peace between a sinner and God was laid completely upon Christ. The father saw the travail of Christ's soul in death and in that punishment, in that torment. And the father was satisfied. So when a Christian suffers... When things do not go well for us, it is certainly not a punishment. It's not some kind of a lesson God wants to teach us. It's just a part of life. But Paul is trying to calibrate the Roman Christians, including you and I here in the modern times. We will suffer, but it is doing something for us in an eschatological way. Suffering is just a part of life, and especially the Christian's life. Paul should know. He suffered tremendously at the hand of his kinsmen and at the hand of Roman officials, every which way the apostle turned. In fact, every which way all of the apostles turned as they went into the known world, they suffered on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. The greatest name, the most exalted name in the universe, the name of victory and breakthrough and redemption, that name cost them their lives. And so Paul is writing to the Romans, not with a fanciful, illusionary notion of the Christian life, and he's warning them, life will be tough. There in Rome, you will yet be persecuted to some extent or another. And we know that in time, Rome would unleash through the emperor Nero a tremendous persecution on the Christians in the year 64 and thereafter when the Christians would be driven underground into the catacombs just to sort of make it through the day. Paul is saying to the believers, hang in there. Um, This is a part of life. It's a part of this futile creation and the struggle and the groaning of this creation that we're currently in. But there's a glory coming. However, I do want to speak a balancing and perhaps even a clarifying word. I do not believe the Apostle Paul is endorsing the suffering of victimization and abuse. 
um, as a child being beaten, uh, as a girl being molested and sold into slavery. There are so many injustices in this world that will yet unleash the vengeance and the wrath and the judgment, the fierceness of Almighty God. I don't know how God will vindicate and exonerate all of the victims of this world, but I trust him to do so. But in the meantime, that kind of a suffering we should immediately pounce upon and use whatever means possible to bring deliverance to um, abusive situations and women and children, etc., etc. Beloved, that is not the suffering that Paul endorses. I do not believe that's the suffering Christ is talking about himself. The suffering they are talking about is because of association with the master. In Matthew 10, Christ spoke to his followers and he said, you know, if they call the teacher Beelzebub, the master of the house Beelzebub, and a devil and a demon and evil, and they persecute Christ, then they will do it to the students. They will do it to the servants because the servant is not above his master. Paul suffered because of his association with the exalted and glorified name of Jesus Christ. The folk in Rome would suffer, and all over the Christian world, they would suffer the association with Christ. They're not exempt from that. And so Paul's admonition is to stay the course. Right now, it may seem as though there's a sword to your neck and you are in danger, and you are being pressed from every which side, and it looks as though you're like a lamb led to the slaughter, particularly the Christian man, the Christian woman. Paul is talking about Christian suffering on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. And he encourages us to stay the course to not be under a romanticized view of the spiritual life, but just to keep focused on the eschatological redemption of our spirit, soul, and body. And so Paul brings in eschatological terms to breathe a little bit of hope and expectancy within the Roman Christians so that they can stay the course throughout life and all of the suffering that will yet come their way. And the eschatological terms is an inheritance somehow from God and a joint inheritance with Christ and a glorification of the body. This term, an heir of God, is highly mystical. Paul does not expound in great length what he means by the fact that we will be heirs of God. He did say in the previous verses that we have been adopted as sons, and as sons we have a legitimate right to inherit from the Father. What is Paul speaking about when he says that we will inherit of God? Many of the Lord's children, even the Lord's lovers, are consumed with a place called heaven 
often with castles and mansions. And depending on how you behaved while on this earth, you may at best end up with a shack on the outskirts of heaven. But still, you made it through the pearly gates. This concept of inheritance from God in the way of property and mansions and prosperity. Beloved, it is the natural tendencies of man. It's the fallen concepts of man that we superimpose upon the eternal life. Often the idolatries of our own heart and the undealt with lusts and greeds of our own heart What we do is we spiritualize that and we say that heaven is the superlative thereof. It's got stadiums and arenas and golf courses and mansions and castles and gold and etc., etc. Why do we do that? It's because those are the things that matter to us here on earth. So heaven must be the intensification thereof, the perfection, the superlative We even uh, look at passages like John 14, where Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions, some translations would say, and I'm going to prepare a place for you to live there. But that's not what the Greek is actually saying. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many abodes. There are many dwelling places. My Father himself is the house. If anybody ever deserved a castle, it would be Jesus Christ. And yet he gives no indication that he lives in a castle, comes from a castle. He comes from God. He comes from the very core and bosom of God. And in God, through his redemptive work, he is preparing a place so that with him we can dwell In God, God is the mansion, God himself, the Father. He is the place. He is heaven. And so many of us can only see brick and mortar and gold and diamonds and pearly gates and crystal and the translucence of the streets of the new Jerusalem and the jasper and the onyx and the sardius. And we just see gold and glitter, beloved. So what? If there's gold and glitter, all riches, all beauty that is not my God is but poverty to me, Augustine would say. We are going to God. Somehow, in the strangest, most mystical of ways, we are going to be in Christ, in God. God is going to be our inheritance. And should heaven look nice, should it be beautiful? In a way, that's penultimate, it's ancillary, it's not the main issue. There are a couple of examples in the Old Testament that I want to dare say this is perhaps what Paul is referring to. The first example is in Genesis 15, when Abraham speaks to God and he says, God, what will you give me, seeing that I am childless? Um, I only have a servant, Eleazar, but, but I have no inheritance. I have no posterity. I have nothing tangible to show really for my life. And in Genesis 15, God speaks to Abram at that time, and he says to him, Abram, I am your exceedingly 
great reward. What you're going to inherit is not just a son and a lineage and a, and a people. Your greatest inheritance, really, is God himself. We know this also from the book of Numbers, chapter 18, where there is the description that the Levitical priesthood will not be allotted a portion of the good land of Canaan. All the other tribes get a portion, except the Levites. They have no inheritance. In Numbers 18, verse 20, the Lord speaks to Aaron, and he says, You shall have no inheritance in the land, no property, no buildings, no vineyards, no livestock. You shall have no portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. We have this idea of inheriting God also from the psalmist in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. And it says, The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You are my lot. In other words, God, you are the one who fills my cup. You're my portion. You're my inheritance. It goes on to say that the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a bountiful, a beautiful, an extravagant inheritance. In Genesis, in Numbers, and in the Psalms, it speaks about the possibility that God can actually be a man's inheritance. Well, this is mystical. Again, Paul does not explain in detail what this will look like, but somehow as a Roman listener, I'm hearing this and I say, wow, I am going to get something from God's heart, something from God's nature. I've received his righteousness. I've received his holiness. I'm getting something from his nature, even the way Peter would say that we can become partakers of the divine nature of God. It is difficult to say exactly how we will inherit God, but we've come to understand that one of the things that we will inherit from God is immortality. We'll talk about that in just a minute. See, God is the eternal life. And one of the things we can be sure of amidst all of the mystery of this inheritance, is that we will receive immortality, everlasting life. Paul also writes that we are joint heirs of Christ. It's another mystical term. It's an eschatological term for the age to come. And he does not give a lot of detail as to how do we become partakers of the inheritance of Christ. The Father gave everything to Christ that Christ procured through his death and resurrection and his accomplishment in redemption. 
God gave him a name above every other name, and God gave him the throne, and God gave him to rule and to reign. What he inherits from the Father as the firstborn among many brothers, we, who now become the sons and the daughters of God and the brothers of Christ, somehow we join in and participate with his inheritance. Beloved, this is marvelous. It's mystical, but somehow... Even as Christ was vindicated by God and risen from the dead and exonerated and exalted, somehow God will do the same for us and we will share in the victory of Christ. In Revelation 3 verse 21, as Christ speaks to the church in Laodicea, he says that he who overcomes will be granted to sit with Christ upon his throne. By grace, we will become partakers of the kingship. Um, We will not be the king. We will not be the Lord, but we will be co-heirs with him in ruling and reigning. It's mystical, I admit. I don't fully understand it. Perhaps the Roman Christians did understand it. I, I have to wonder... It is mystical, but it it produces hope within us and it produces endurance within us. Stay the course through the difficulties of life because even as Christ was given to sit at the right hand of the Father, you will be in Christ and you will be seated with Him in glory. And then Paul mentions this idea of glory and glorification. What does he mean when he says that we will be glorified and and there is a weight of glory coming our way? It's a little bit mystical. Again, it's eschatological. But we have a few more references in the Bible regarding this compared to that of being the heirs of God. So, glory, what, what is it? In a way, it's three things. From the Old Testament, we have a Hebrew word describing glory. And from the New Testament, we have two words, two ideas to describe glory. Glory in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word kabod. And it simply means weight. In other words, the weight of a pebble compared to the weight of a mountain differs in its glory. The one has more substance, the other one has less substance. So in the Old Testament idea, glory has to do with weight. And in a way, Paul is saying there is a weight of glory. There's a substance of glory that is coming. Somehow, the very substance of God's person will become our substance I don't fully understand what that will be like. And um, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John speaks about this, and he's not entirely sure what we will be like. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been manifested what we will be. But we know that when He is manifested, that we will be like Him because we will see him as he is. 
John was not entirely sure how we're going to look. What will be the substance of our being? Paul hints at it in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that we will be clothed with immortality. The substance of eternity, the substance of the spiritual, the heavenly. That's your Hebrew word, so perhaps it's an indication of what's going to happen to us eschatologically speaking. In Greek, we have a word doxa for the word glory, and that simply means shining. The light that emits from a light bulb has glory, but the light that comes out of the sun is way more glorious because it's brighter. It emits transmits so much more glory. It's the little candlelight versus a bonfire. The candlelight shines and it radiates beautiful glory. But a campfire, a bonfire that's ablaze is so much more glorious. Paul says, the glory that's coming our way is a glory of substance and weight. It's a mystical shining, the way that God is glorious and shines, somehow we will be like that. I don't fully understand what that means because in Matthew 17, Christ transfigured in front of the disciples and he shone in his radiant, effulgent glory. And there was a glowing about him. But after his resurrection, when he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, And when he appeared to the disciples in um, John chapter 20 on the day of resurrection, he looked very much like a normal common man. Later on, when he cooks fish on the shores of the Galilee to the disciples, Jesus didn't levitate and glow and turn into gold. He was a normal common man, but yet he was glorious and he was glorified and he had the substance of glory. So I'm not entirely sure will we glow Or will we be normal? All that Paul hints at is that we will be transformed. And that glory um, is described most beautifully in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read a few verses there for you because Paul is describing the resurrection of the body and how this body of dirt and the body from this earth will put on immortality. Paul says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised and what kind of a body will the dead have that are raised? In verse 36, Paul says, foolish man, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that will be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of some other kind of seed. And Paul is using a metaphor here that uh, a kernel of grain, wheat, um, does not look like the plant that comes up in germination. It's sown a seed, but it comes up a plant. And he says, even so, your body looks one way today, but it's going to be glorified and look altogether different. He says in verse 38, But God gives it a body even as He willed. 
and to each of the seeds its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but one is of men, and another flesh is of cattle, and another is of the birds, and another is of fish. He says there's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. And he draws a comparison between the body that is versus what will be the heavenly. And even as the sun differs from the planet and the celestial bodies are all unique, even so the heavenly is different than that of the earthly. He says in verse 41, carrying on the metaphor that there's another glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star in glory. And so also is the resurrection of the dead. Our bodies are sown in corruption and they will be raised in incorruption. Our bodies are sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. So somehow in our glorified bodies, there will be honor and dignity. There will be shining and weight. There will even be power. In verse 44, he says, Our bodies are sown a solical body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. He says, If there is a solical natural body, then there is also a spiritual one. Going on to verse 49, Paul says, And even as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So we know that the glorification of our body and even of our person, it will take on the substance and the honor and the, the qualities of that which is eternal and spiritual and heavenly. In verse 50, he says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We will not all be asleep, but we will all be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, instantly at the last trumpet, uh, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's why I say when we inherit from God, and when we inherit from Christ, and when we are glorified... It is mystical. Paul says, I speak a mystery. It is hard to understand exactly what it will look like. But here it is in a nutshell. We will put on immortality and we will never die again. Paul says a similar thing in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 21. He says that the Lord Jesus will transfigure this body of our humiliation. In Corinthians, he calls this body a body of dishonor, 
of humiliation and it will be conformed to the body of his glory according to his power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, the author says that somehow we will become partakers of God's holiness, of God's very essence, of God's very weight and substance and shining, and we will see Him. Now, all of this is just amazing, and it's just wonderful, and I trust it it breathes hope into you the way it was intended to breathe hope into the Roman Christians listening to this letter. Indeed, the Christian life is beautiful. Salvation is a beautiful process, and the eschatological uh, wrap-up of it all is nothing but glory itself. Glorification has yet another connotation in the New Testament. It is a substance. It is a kind of a shining, but it's also an exoneration. It is an exalting. It is a lifting up and a vindication. And what Paul is trying to say to the Roman people, and no doubt to the Corinthian people, and to you and I in the modern times, is that if we are humiliated and we are persecuted and we are scoffed and laughed and even if we are martyred for the name of the Lord, even as God gave Christ the name above all names and vindicated and exonerated and exalted Him, the Christians will also be lifted up. Right now we experience mockery and humiliation and disdain in time. We will be with our Lord, seated in glory. We will be the sons and daughters of God. We will be the bride of Christ. We will inherit from God, inherit with Christ. We will be fully vindicated, fully exonerated, and we will be given a new name. No, it's not the name of names. There's only one worthy to have that name. But we will be associated with his esteem and his exaltation. Not that we will be worshipped. Not that we will be adored. It's just we will be vindicated. And that is the heart of Paul towards the Romans. Right now, as a Christian there in Rome, you are being vilified and you are being misunderstood and misrepresented and you are being uh, ostracized, stay the course. Stay the course. In time, you will be lifted up and exonerated. But until that eschatological realization, until the end of times come and the trumpet blows, and until All this is wrapped up in God's economy and it's consummated. Until that time, life, especially for the Christian, will be difficult. We will be vexed and harassed 
from every which side by the satanic to reject God to the uttermost. Inside of us, there is a war to resist the economy of God and the will of God and the mind of God and the way of God. Inside, my flesh, my ego, my self-life, my old man is fighting the things of the Spirit of God. I do not want to bear the fruit of God. I don't want to live out the renown and the name and the manifestation of Christ in this world. I just want to do it the old way. And there is fighting and there is a war and there is an onslaught even from culture and from people and from dignitaries. And and it is just downright hard to sometimes live on the straight and the narrow Like John the baptizer when he was thrown in prison, he asked, Christ, are you the one? Did we somehow miss it? Are you the one that's going to deliver us from imprisonment? After all, the Spirit of God is upon you to deliver, to redeem, to save, and to heal. And here I am stuck in prison. Are you the Messiah? Often I say the same. As life gets difficult and circumstances get out of control, Christ, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one that is going to deliver me? And you may recall the Lord's word to his cousin, John the baptizer. And that word is also relevant to you and I to this very day. He said, blessed is the man who is not offended with me. When I don't show up in your life and deliver you speedily and imminently and completely, and when I don't answer your prayers and I delay, and even if you are left in prison, and even if you were to be beheaded and suffer the ultimate consequence of your association with me, blessed is the man who is not offended by me and stumble because of my way and my method. As Paul writes to the Romans, he is encouraging them to stay the course. And not only will God redeem them fully and glorify the Christians fully, but Paul will go on to explain that even creation will be delivered. God has a makeover for us as individuals, but he has a makeover, a new creation that will be delivered from the futility and the corruption of this current era. And Paul will speak regarding creation. And beloved, as a Roman Christian, listening to this exposition of the gospel of God, I'm sure at times they were speechless. But I'm sure for the most part, they were ecstatic and just blown out of their minds at the purposes of God. Romans 8, what a marvelous letter. I hope it creeps into your heart the way that it has crept into mine and no doubt has crept into the Roman Christians of that day and Christians throughout the past 2,000 years. Beloved, stay the course. Stay the course. And if you don't know how to pray and you are in the struggle Paul says, don't worry, you have the Holy Spirit that's even praying in you through this suffering, through this trial. You can endure. You can actually stay the course because you're more than a conqueror through Christ who loved you. 
through the Spirit who prays within you according to the purposes and the heart and the burden of God. Beloved, you've got it made. Even though with the natural eye, it doesn't look that way. Paul says, look to the things that are unseen. There is an inheritance. There is a glorification coming. Stay the course and finish strong.